Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016. It's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Lawrence Dahlman. With us today is Brian Leiter, Carl N. Llewellyn Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the Center for Law, Philosophy, and Human Values at the University of Chicago. He is here to discuss why we should think about Marx. Brian Leiter, welcome back to Elucidations. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Lawrence. It's good to be here again. So Karl Marx is famous for like telling a story about the way our society is set up and the way it's going to go, the kinds of, you know, maybe catastrophes it might be headed for. What were some of his basic views about that? So I'm going to resist calling it a story to start with, because for Marx, it was very important that it was actually a correct explanation of patterns of historical, social and economic change, that that was really central to the whole way he thought about what he was doing. He thought it was a scientific theory of historical change, though remember scientific, right, Wissenschaftlich in the 19th century. For us, scientific has the connotation of natural science, looks like physics. Didn't have that connotation for Marx, right? But it was meant to be a true explanatory account of why it is... um, history evolves the way it does, why it is particular forms of social order rise and fall. And Marx's crucial thought was that the sort of the engine of historical change really had two components to it. One was the level of development of what he called the productive forces in a society. That is, every society has some way in which people produce the things they need in order to live, right? And foragers and Farmers produce what they need to live in ways very different than we do in industrial capitalism. And indeed, we in the 21st century produce our means of subsistence quite a bit differently than even at the heyday of industrial capitalism in the the middle of the 20th century. So Marx's first thought is that you've got to pay attention to how developed the productive forces of any given society are at any particular historical moment. But then the other thing that he thought that was crucial is that the dynamics of any society were a matter of what he famously called class struggle, where classes for Marx are defined in terms of the relationship they stand in to the existing productive forces in a society. So in classic, say, 19th century industrial capitalism, workers, the famed proletariat that Marx talked about, Um, workers owned only their own labor power. That was the only force of production they owned, and they were able to sell it to capitalists. Capitalists were able to purchase other people's labor power, but capitalists also owned the industrial means of production. They owned the factory, 
and then they owned the widgets that came off the assembly line from the factory. They paid the workers some wage right, in return for the labor power and everything else the capitalists were able to keep. That's just one example. So in a capitalist society, we have capitalists. They own the major means of production. They purchase other people's labor power. Workers, they can only sell their labor power. They don't own any other means of production. If you go back to the Middle Ages, you think of feudal societies, it's totally different. The serfs didn't even own their labor power, right? They couldn't sell their labor power. They could perhaps use some of it to produce some of their means of subsistence. They didn't even typically own their tools, right? The feudal lord owned everything, owned the land, owned the tools, right? And owned the labor power of the serfs, right? That is, they had to do a certain amount of work for the feudal lord. And Marx's crucial thought is that classes, as defined by their ownership relation to the forces of production, end up in a certain kind of conflict, as you might imagine. And in particular, dominant classes right, extract as much economic value as they can from the forces of production they control, and they do so in a way that typically isn't advantageous for those who don't own the major forces of production. And so what arises is a certain kind of class conflict, as Marx famously described it. So one question I have is about the situation you mentioned, the feudal situation versus the heyday of industrial capitalism situation. What situation are we in right now? So does Marx's notion of class correspond to our intuitive everyday, like, well, there are Silicon Valley CEOs and they run the show and then there are people who work blue collar jobs. Is it basically the same thing or is it a little bit different? So the, the stratification of classes has become a bit more complicated in 21st century capitalism. I mean, this started in the, in the 20th century. The classic Marxian proletariat, that is people who sell their labor power to capitalists who own factories, is a much smaller part of the general workforce. However, it's still the case that most of us, I include myself, right, I sell my labor power to the University of Chicago. Now, I sell it under ridiculously favorable terms. Don't tell my dean I said that. But I sell my labor power to the University of Chicago uh, and am paid a wage in return for performing certain kinds of services, teaching, research, administrative work, supervision of students, and so on. The rise of personal retirement accounts means that even I have slight, very small ownership interests in some of the major forces of production, right, through my, my IRAs and, you know, the university-sponsored retirement plan and so on. And that's true of lots of people, okay? It's also true that the forces of production have changed very significantly, right? That is, the industrial factory, the paradigm of a force of production in the 19th century, they're still there. There's plenty of factories, the factories that produce, you know, the chips that make the whole world run, right? But, of course, an awful lot of productive power arises from technologies, right? It's particularly related to computers and nanotechnologies that don't look much like the traditional factory, right? Even if there are factories that produce the chips, you know, what is it that Bill Gates owns, right? Well, one of the things that he owns are property rights in computer software, which doesn't exactly look like the old machine that produces widgets, but the productive power of that software, the Microsoft software, is, of course, enormous and integrated into 
You know, it's right here in this office behind me, right? It's probably in most offices in the world these days and so on. So there are more, as it were, nuances, I think, to there are more different gradations of class. But at the end of the day, as the work by economists in recent years on inequality has shown, most wealth, now they talk about wealth and not productive power, right? But we can think of wealth as roughly, you know, what Marx would have called capital. Most wealth is owned by a very, very small fraction of the population, right? The fraction of the population that runs the elections in America, for example. And seems reasonable in Marxian terms to think of that group as the ruling class, in part because of their vast wealth and in part because a lot of that wealth is tied up with control of the main productive powers that power a 21st century you know, modern economy like ours. And they're the people that people like you and I are selling our labor to, in principle. Um, yeah, more or less directly, right? I mean, it, you know, it can vary quite a bit. What is the relationship between the University of Chicago as an employer and the, and the ruling classes in capitalist society? Well, it's complicated. In some places, it's very, very close, right? If you look at the University of Chicago Board of Trustees, it is not made up of the working class. <laughs> now, fortunately, there's actually, I mean, there's a strong tradition in many American universities, but certainly this one, that although the university's ability to function is heavily indebted to and dependent upon members of the ruling class, they largely stay out of the affairs of the university. It hasn't always been the case in the, in the history of the world. And ironically, the, where the, <laughs> at least in the developed Western democracies, the universities that have the most problems these days are the ones where there is no meaningful private sector and they're at the hands of government bureaucrats. That's a kind of side issue. But, but look, other people, you know, sell their labor power. You know, somebody who works at the barbershop on 53rd Street here in Hyde Park, you know, isn't exactly selling their labor power to a member of the ruling class. They're selling it to, you know, a shopkeeper, right? And, you know, and shopkeepers existed in Marx's time too, right? They, they're a different kind of, they are purchasing other people's labor power, but they themselves are not members of the ruling class because they don't really own the major forces of production, right? They own few barbershop chairs, few electric razors, <laughs> perhaps the storefront and so on. All right, so Marx is commonly taken to make claims about the essentially self-undermining character of capitalism. What are your views on this part of Marx? Well, Marx thinks that every historical epic characterized by a certain level of development of the forces of production, a certain economic system, gets to a point where it undermines itself. And so capitalism is just the final part of, of that story. Um, and you have to remember, you know, that Marx, um, to his lasting misfortune, was very influenced by Hegel. And so he takes over quite a lot of things from Hegel. He takes over more than he, in fact, rejects. But one of the things he takes over is the thought that history has a certain kind of, as Hegel would call it, dialectical structure, in which certain kinds of contradictions or tensions in a historical moment lead to an explosion and a historical transformation. And he takes over from Hegel the idea that history has a teleological structure. I think it is plainly false that history has a teleological structure. 
if you were Hegel and you were basically a Christian philosopher who believed that history was the working out of God's intentions for humankind with the help of Hegel, that might have seemed plausible. Marx as an atheist should have said farewell to that, but he didn't. And having a teleological structure here means that as a society, we're we're all headed towards some ideal outcome. Or some goal? Yes, sorry. So the teleological, say that history has a teleological structure, I mean history is necessarily heading for a certain outcome. It doesn't necessarily have to be a happy outcome, for, but for both Hegel and Marx it was, right? It was a happy story. This is, this is a Whiggish version of history. Now, Marx, right, thought that the crucial engine of historical transformation arose from the kinds of conflicts between classes that at some point come to a head in every form of economic organization. And he thinks that is true of capitalism too. Now why does he think that capitalism is bound to self-destruct? He had an official view about this which I think is mistaken. So let me just say a couple of things. I think, you know, if the question is why should anyone think about Marx today, it isn't because of the labor theory of value. Marx was starting with the question, well, where does value in commodities, things that are, you know, bought and sold in the marketplace, where does that come from? And he thought it had to do with the amount of labor power that was put into it. That was the real source of value. Okay? That was the labor theory of value. And then given the labor theory of value, he thought capitalism was prone to something he called the falling rate of profit which was then going to be a real problem for capitalism since capitalism was all about the generation of profit. The reason he thought the rate of profit would fall is because capitalists would displace human labor with cheaper technology, a fact that is familiar to us to this day. They will replace human labor power with cheaper technology, but on Marx's view, given the labor theory of value, if there's less human labor then there's less source of the value from which capitalists could generate profit in the first place. So profit, rate of profit will necessarily fall. Now this is bad Marx. This here he was just mistaken, it seems to me. The labor theory of value is not a plausible account of the source of value in capitalist societies, value in commodities. Think of the law and supply of demand as an attempt to, as it were, provide a different kind of account. Right. How much people want something right, has some effect on the value, the price it can command in the market. And since the labor theory of value is false, the falling rate of profit theory is going to be false. And indeed, the evidence shows that it's false. That is, companies increase their profits precisely when they replace expensive human labor power with cheaper technologies. That's why they do it. They're capitalists, after all. And capitalists, in order to survive, have to adhere to a certain logic that is dictated by the market relations under which they function. You can't be a kind-hearted capitalist and survive. Now, that being said, I still think Marx is basically right. But I think the, the story has to be a slightly different one. Capitalists are in pursuit of profit. In pursuit of profit, they want to reduce costs while at the same time being able to produce what they had been able to produce previously, whatever goods or commodities it is that they're selling. The problem is, as they reduce costs by eliminating human labor power, they also systematically eliminate those who are able to purchase the commodities and goods that capitalists produce. So they create a, shall we say, inherently 
unstable and irrational situation that looks something like this. And I'm going to exaggerate a little, but I think this is clearly how Marx was thinking of it, right? Which is capitalism, Marx thinks, enhances the productive power of humanity better than any other system. This is important to remember about Marx. He was actually in one way a huge fan of capitalism. No communism without capitalism. A lot of what he has to say about capitalism, people over in our economics department here would say, yes, that's exactly right. Capitalism is great at producing the development of new technology, new productive forces, and so on. The problem is that all these productive forces are owned by a very small number of people whose only interest is in the generation of profit. And so we get into a strange situation where capitalism has produced extraordinary productive capacity. Between 1750 and 1850, the increase in productive power in Europe was extraordinary. In that 100 years, it was like greater than the prior 2000. And so a lot of people thought, wow, right, we're going to, we're getting very close to the point where the productive power of humanity is such that, you know, manna will be falling from heaven, right? You just push the button and you have all the things you need. And Marx is very explicit. You can't get rid of capitalism until you have massive productive capacity. Massive productive capacity of the kind that makes it the case that you can produce everything that people actually need for subsistence. That it's easy, right? You can be a little inefficient, it won't matter. You know, you can have waste, it won't matter. The productive power will be that huge. If capitalism gets us to that point, and the mistake was Marx, like a lot of them in the 19th century, thought this was just around the corner. He didn't have a strong sense of what was going on around the globe and so on. You know, the productive power between 1850 and now, you know, 2016 has increased, you know, multiple fold as well since, right? And we still haven't maxed out. But Marx's thought was capitalism produces this tremendous growth in the productive capacity of humanity. And yet this productive power is all under the control of people who want to utilize it only to produce things to generate profit. In the course of increasing their profit margins, they immiserate the vast majority of humanity, whose labor power is no longer needed to do anything as technology takes their place, with the result that most people are miserable now, and literally immiserated. Right? Think of the slums around Rio de Janeiro. That's what we're talking about. Right? People are immiserated. Their labor power is no longer needed. Yet the productive power of humanity is adequate to provide for everyone's needs, but it's in the hands of a small number of people whose only interest in it is to generate profit, which they can't really generate quite as much of because there's nobody to buy things anymore because they've all been immiserated. That's the folksy version of why capitalism is going to self-destruct. Marx's thought, I think it's a pretty plausible thought, is that if you have a scenario that looks like what I just described, it's not going to be a stable scenario. It's not going to be a stable situation in which most people are immiserated, yet we have the productive capacity to meet everyone's needs. And I think people are well aware of this, right? I mean, it's in a way, it's, you know, this Marxian scenario sort of bubbles beneath the surface of a lot of public discourse, right? You know, so these, all these, you know, previously well-paid union workers in the Midwest who've lost their jobs because the factories migrate to places where the labor power is cheaper. You know, what's going to happen to them? They used to be able to make $25 an hour, now they can make twelve fifty an hour, 
at Walmart. But even Walmart is going to gradually eliminate people, right, in favor of, and they've already done it. You know, just think in the last 20 years, remember when cashiers used to be everywhere? And now they've been replaced by scanners, okay? And sometimes there's a cashier overseeing the scanners, right? But that's a very simple case of a technological innovation that's eliminating human labor power. Driverless cars and trucks. The minute we have driverless trucks, that's three million jobs that um, working class people, people with limited education, jobs that pay pretty well will simply disappear. Why are people talking again about the need, possible need for universal basic income? Well, because they recognize that the trend lines here are very, very bad, right? People won't be able to even sell their labor power because it will be less and less needed. And yet at the same time, they've still got to survive. Unless, of course, you just want to let them all die, which is, I think, a certain portion of the ruling class does. They don't like to say that because it's not polite. So put in more colloquial terms, I think that's Marx's picture of why capitalism is fundamentally irrational and unstable. Develops the productive power of humanity to an extraordinary extent, but utilizes it only in the service of the pursuit of profit. And as a result, ends up immiserating most people whose needs could, in fact, be met but aren't given the way the productive power of humanity is controlled. Namely, it's owned by the 1% to pick the current stand-in for the ruling class in political discourse. So do you think that Marx's analysis of capitalism sheds any light on recent events in American history? I think the only reason to think about Marx is either he's right or he's wrong about the way he has diagnosed the tendencies of capitalist societies to develop. And that is a complicated empirical question. I actually think, you know, all the tendencies of global capitalism over the last, you know, two centuries suggest that he's basically right about the pattern. And a lot of the turmoil we've seen in American politics recently, you know, including the the 2016 election, is as it were just sort of symptoms of these things that are going on, right? I mean, so we do have this system in which the two dominant political parties are essentially parties that represent the interests of the ruling class. And indeed, there are political scientists, a guy at Northwestern, one at Princeton, Benjamin Page, and I forget the other guy, who actually, you know, did a kind of empirical look at this. And what they found is that really rich people play a hugely disproportionate role in setting the policy agendas of both parties which is hardly surprising when you look what passes for policy agendas in the United States. So you have essentially two parties, ruling class parties. You know, the Democrats, I call them the prudent wing of the ruling class. That is, they're kind of, you know, a little worried about immiseration, you know. Uh, And then the Republicans tend to be the very imprudent wing. So the Democrats nominated, you know, someone from the prudent wing of the ruling class party in 2016. The Republicans nominated a billionaire, who posed as being concerned about workers who, in fact, are victims of globalization, but more precisely, they're victims of capitalism, right? Globalization is sort of, you know, is the code word here, right? But what it's really they're victims of is the logic of capitalist markets, right? Capitalist companies will either replace human labor power with technology or they'll replace it with cheaper labor power, full stop. And if they don't, they will lose out to the capitalist competitors who do. That's how the whole thing works. And so the billionaire poses as concerned with this. 
swings, whatever it was, 70,000 votes in three states of, you know, union workers who previously voted Democrats switched to the Republicans. But it's all a charade. Trump's cabinet is now almost entirely full of billionaires. There's no indication whatsoever that the ruling class in capitalist America doesn't still control the policy agenda. It's just going to be more of the same, which is going to mean there's going to be more misery and there's going to be more looking for alternatives by people who are genuinely aggrieved. I want to emphasize that. I mean, this is why I dislike it when people say, oh, everybody who voted for Trump was a racist. That's bullshit. You know, there were probably some racists who voted for Trump, right? If I were a racist, I guess I'd pick Trump over Clinton. But no, most of the people who voted on both sides, you know, but especially many of those who switched to Trump were genuinely aggrieved. Unfortunately, they have completely mistaken views about cause and effect. So they made, it, they made a very serious error in terms of what they thought would be the effect of casting that kind of vote. And that is our dilemma. So, but we don't get, as I say, sort of honest discussion of it, but the underlying pattern and problems that Marx diagnosed seems to me, you know, are right beneath the surface of all these things. And that goes for Brexit, too. It goes for a lot of other, you know, what's going on in the internal politics of many countries. So we're screwed until capitalism is defeated. All right, so you've described a, a trend within capitalism toward greater and greater immiseration, and you've characterized you know, one portion of the ruling class as more prudent and one portion as less prudent. With respect to what are these politicians making prudent and imprudent decisions, that is to ask, what does Marx predict as the plausible outcome of this greater and greater immiseration, and what are these politicians trying to prevent? Good. Um, so when I describe the Democrats as the prudent wing of the ruling class party, I, I'm, I'm being a little ironic. I mean, they're prudent in the sense that they want to slow the pace of miseration. Right? They, they don't think of it quite in these terms, but to some extent they're aware that everything about the logic of the market to which they are beholden and which they worship, and they, and they all do, Right. And we've had eight years of Obama. He's a nice man. He speaks well. He's civilized, unlike his successor. Right. He's not an animal. He's not an ignoramus. But he's a complete lackey of the capitalist ruling class in every single meaningful respect. He did nothing to restore even the New Deal consensus from the Roosevelt years. And even Roosevelt was, of course, motivated in the 30s by wanting to preserve the capitalist system. So when I say that they're prudent wing, I mean, I'm being a little ironic, right? They're trying to stave off what's bound to come. The Republicans tend to be imprudent in the sense that they don't even want to make the slight efforts to check the inherent logic of the market, which is mass immiseration. Now, of course, the ironic part is um, revolutions tend not to end well for ruling classes, I think. Every historical episode seems to confirm that. So if Marx is right about the tendency, right, they're being imprudent <laughs> with respect to their own, uh, their own long-term well-being as well. But again, as between the Democrats and Republicans, I mean, it, it's a matter, there's still, even today, there's still more agreement then there is disagreement about an awful lot of things. And not just in foreign policy, where this is essentially the, both parties speak univocally. So, but again, this is if Marx is right about what the tendency is. But it seems to me 
all the evidence we have suggests he is right about the tendency. He was wrong about a lot of things. He was wrong about the timetable of it. He was wrong about the ability of capitalist ruling classes to ameliorate and slow down and adjust in certain ways. Right? So he didn't really foresee the 20th century labor union movement. But the 20th century labor union movement in the industrial capitalist societies is in decline. I mean, in the U.S. it's basically been destroyed, right, except at the margins. And with its destruction, the normal tendency of capitalist relations of production resumes its course, right, which is widening inequality, which now everybody's talking about. But everybody, most of the people talking about it don't really diagnose it as the inevitable result of the logic of an economic system to which they are all basically committed, including Paul Krugman, who has to count as the most sanctimonious superficial person on the face of the earth. So I wonder about how inevitable this is. It seems like the mechanism you just described involves industrial capitalism ramping up a lot of power to produce a lot of really advanced technology and produce a lot of manufactured goods. And then once that power has reached a certain critical point, human labor becomes redundant. But then because the ruling classes who are in charge of the whole apparatus are still mainly driven by maximizing profit, they're not going to do, quote unquote, the right thing and use their wealth to end the immiseration they've caused. They're just going to keep on doing the same old thing. And that's that's what's going to make the whole thing implode. But is there another version of this scenario where once capitalism has bypassed this critical point where automation makes human labor redundant, where the ruling classes could turn around and be like, oh, okay, maybe now is the time not to prioritize profit anymore. Now is the time to do something else that's not going to make the system completely implode. Is that a possibility? Yes, it's a possibility. And let me be clear about the inevitability point. I actually don't think, partly for the, the kinds of because of the kind of scenario you describe, that the overthrow of capitalism is inevitable. I think the developmental tendency of capitalism is inevitable. It is built into the entire structure of what it means to run a capitalist economy. Now, is it possible that uh, at some point in, the, uh, in maybe the not-too-distant future where the productive power of humanity is such that we push a button to get our manna from heaven, that's all of a sudden the ruling class will uh, become very uh, altruistic and concerned for their fellow human beings. You know, they love that in the tech world. It's pivoting. Right. Yeah, it's certainly possible. We don't see a lot of examples of that in the history of the world, though we might say in a Marxist spirit that, well, because we've never been at a point in the history of the world where the productive power was so enormous that the ruling class could sacrifice none of its avarice and still meet the needs of other people. Right? So, yeah, it's possible. I don't know that I... I think it's very, very likely. But that's just a guess. That's not... Marx did not think a lot about individual psychology. And, you know, in a way, this is a question about what's possible, what the limits of individual psychology and individual motivation are. You know, Hume and many others after have observed that human beings are creatures of limited altruism. Right? It could be that we aren't really creatures of limited altruism. It just depends on the circumstances under which the human beings we're looking at have lived 
and maybe in some hard-to-imagine future of enormous productive power, those who own it would in fact deploy it differently. That's possible. So one might think that the decision to pass legislation to reduce the immiseration of the workers um, is motivated not only by prudence or by kind of arbitrarily felt altruism, but by conformity to you know, moral beliefs, uh, to beliefs about what, even in a position of privilege, one ought to do. How does this fit into the story that Marx tells about the motivations of historical actors? So, you know, I think Marx clearly recognizes that people, including ruling classes, have moral beliefs, and that sometimes they may even act on the basis of moral considerations or moral reasons. Now, what Marx also thinks, which again seems to be confirmed by what we observe in history, is that the moral beliefs that individuals have in general, and especially the ruling classes, I mean, there's an antecedent claim here, which is Marx thinks that the general moral ideology of a society is going to be one that is basically in the interests of its ruling classes. So he doesn't think that moral beliefs will arise, propagate, catch on in a society if they're fundamentally hostile to capitalist relations of production in the case of a capitalist society. And I do think that's actually what we see in terms of, you know, professions of, you know, moral commitment, right? So it's about charity. Charity and the moral imperative to contribute to charity is consistent with all the prerogatives of the ruling class and with capitalist relations of production. It poses no threat whatsoever to either one of those. And as a result, capitalists tend to be very good about talking about obligations of charity. Not all of them, right? I mean, we've got all these guys now have been reading Ayn Rand, right? So they're even given up on that. But put sort of those crazies to one side, you know, that's the kind of, as it were, moral commitment you get, right? And this is why, as you know, as I've written, I think you know Peter Singer is the moral philosopher for late capitalism, because he frames every ethical question as a question about what an individual ought to do against a backdrop that is sort of just taken for granted, right? Every ethical question is a question about how will this action affect overall utility, assuming nothing else changes. Um, And that is a perfect moral ideology for a capitalist society. And, you know, indeed this is why, you know, you've got the Princeton graduate, you know, who went to Wall Street, work in the finance industry, and he's going to give half his income to charity each year. And he clearly thinks of this as having acted on the basis of certain good moral reasons. Notice even cases like that are pretty unusual, (laughs) right? Most of the people working in finance on Wall Street are not giving away half their income. And by the way, giving away half his income isn't that impressive. (laughs) When you remember what his income is. But put that to one side. The thing that's striking is that's what passes for moral philosophy. That's thought to be serious moral philosophy. But I think that's consistent with what, you know, Marx expects, namely that to the extent people in capitalist societies have moral beliefs 
act on moral reasons, profess moral commitment, it will be in ways that are fundamentally unthreatening to the basic prerogatives of the ruling class and capitalist relations of production. Right? Who are the most morally passionate people you, you run into these days, especially around philosophy? Right? It's the vegetarians. Right? Be kind to the piggies and the chickens. Okay? Now, you know, big business agriculture isn't too thrilled with these people. Right? But as a moral crusade goes, it is certainly compatible with the fully successful functioning of the, of the capitalist system. It's not, it's not very threatening. It's not nearly as threatening, say, as if people's moral p passion were invested in the idea that billionaires should have their fortunes confiscated in order to shore up Social Security and Medicare, which I've never seen discussed anywhere in the media or taken up as a big cause. Though it seemed to me an obvious topic for moral debate, right? I mean, these Walton children, you know, inherited this fortune, kicking around in Arkansas, you know, with their billions of dollars. A, they don't deserve it, and B, they don't need it. And I'm a very nice guy. I'd leave them with five million each. And the rest should simply be confiscated and used to support things that actually help human beings who are generally in need. That seems to me a great moral topic. I haven't seen any moral philosophers writing about it. <laughs> Maybe there's someone out there. And it's certainly never discussed. Right? It's certainly never discussed. And that's the really amazing part about you know, the ideological indoctrination in which the entire society operates is that everybody knows better than to try to discuss that in a, in a major media forum. New York Times, no. Right. NBC, CNN, even MSNBC. No, they don't go near any of this stuff. So, yeah, the worry seems to be that a very standard influential picture today of what moral philosophy is all about, the subject matter of moral philosophy is kind of like conveniently unthreatening to the basic power structures behind capitalism. So this idea that what ethicists should be interested in is what would an ideal person in a certain kind of situation do given the certain setup of the situation? How do they figure out what to do as an individual? That's maybe like, you know, conveniently not that threatening. Is there an alternative conception of moral philosophy that you think would be maybe more helpful or more that would pose a threat to capitalism that you would recommend? Uh, I like that way of putting it. Um, yeah. Look, I think there are interesting philosophical questions about morality. I mean, I think one interesting philosophical question about morality is how is it that people come to have the moral beliefs they have? And you know, Marx is not the only sort of thinker who is relevant to that. What I'm doubtful about is that sort of normative moral philosophy, applied ethics. I'm doubtful that any of that has any particularly useful role to play. Or to the extent it does, it's basically not that different from, you know, the Dear Abby advice columns. Um, and, you know, got nothing against Dear Abby. Um, she's not as sanctimonious as some moral philosophers. But, you know, I'm not actually committed to the view that every form of inquiry, philosophical or otherwise, needs to be relevant to revolutionary practice. Far from it. Now, Marx himself, I think, was. You know, Marx in the second thesis on Feuerbach says any question about the reality or non-reality of thinking that makes no difference to practice is a merely scholastic question. 
And he meant that in the pejorative sense of scholastic, right? So, you know, realism versus idealism, you know, the dispute between Kant and Hume or between Hegel and Kant makes no difference to practice, not worth the time. I don't think that's the case. What I do think is uh, is interesting is that normative moral philosophy in the English-speaking world, which purports to be fairly high-minded right, and concerned with what ought to be done, has been completely silent on the main thing that ought to be done <laughs> and that underlies all the actual problems that afflict humanity. Or so it seems to me with, with my Marx hat on. But look, even more generally, I mean, you know, the 20th century has been a century of two ghastly world wars. It has been a century of imperialist aggression around the world, you know, vicious capitalist exploitation of dozens and dozens of countries all over the world resulting in slaughter and disease and grotesque forms of exploitation and the degradation of human beings. And Anglo-American moral philosophy has basically been silent on all of it, it just irrelevant to it. You know, there was a brief moment in the late 60s when a few of Rawls's students, you know, got somewhat interested in these things, you know, the Vietnam War. But the Vietnam War, you know, was just the tip of an iceberg of, you know, what you might have thought was morally unacceptable conduct. <laughs> but, you know, you look in vain in W.D. Ross and H.A. Pritchard and the others for, they're not even aware of it. They're, they're not even aware of any of this. So I do think, you know, you juxtapose the history of 20th century English-speaking moral and political philosophy with the history of the 20th century, and you do realize that <laughs> they seem a little disconnected from each other, which has largely not been true about you know a lot of continental, you know what we might call moral and political theory. Partly because most of it, up until Habermas ruined things, but most of it is more concerned with diagnostic, explanatory questions and is less committed to you know is is more engaged you know across disciplinary borders with trying to understand what happened, right? You know so. Again, before Habermas, you know, wrecked critical theory in the Frankfurt School, though the seeds were there, the Frankfurt School was concerned with a really concrete problem, namely, how did Nazism happen? How was that possible? And how would a population get into a situation like that? And so Adorno famously, after the war, worked with psychologists in trying to understand the authoritarian personality. And... Marcuse tried to diagnose with some Freudian tools, some Hegelian tools, some armchair social theory and various things, you know, tried to say, well, why, how did we get into this situation? And how did capitalism, you know, get into the situation it was in America in, in the 1950s and 60s? That kind of stuff strikes me as, you know, a lot more worthwhile. But look, people have different tastes. As I say, I'm not opposed in principle to practically irrelevant inquiries. I'd be in a lot of trouble <laughs> if they were all all verboten. I do think that normative moral and political philosophy will not, in this last century, will not stand the test of time very well. And that, especially as it's recently developed, it's going to look as, you know, we have philosophers worrying about hard questions like, is it worse if you promise to have sex with someone, is it okay to break that promise but it would be really wrong to break a promise not to have sex with them. And if that's what professional moral philosophers are being paid <laughs> to think about 
in the Trump era, it's going to look pretty silly. So on the version of Marx that we have here, the role that uh, post-capitalist future could play or the role that communism could play would be as the consequence of processes that are already at work within capitalism. Now, many self-proclaimed Marxists have believed that bringing about revolution requires some special feat of will, either on the part of an educated vanguard of socialists or alternatively on the part of the workers themselves. How does your version of Marx square up against that version of Marx? So the whole reason Marx wrote is because he thought if people didn't have a correct understanding of their historical situation and its possibility, they wouldn't be able to effectively take advantage of it. Okay. And so the reason he was active in you know, various political parties, the reason he thought a communist party was important, was that it would educate people not about their moral obligations. <laughs> it would educate people about the historical circumstances in which they found themselves, what the potentialities of that situation were, and what would be in their self-interest. And I think that's very important in, in understanding Marx, right? Communism is not about altruism. Right? It's not about caring for your fellow man. Communism is about recognizing that the existing system is not in your interest and that only with collective action can you bring about circumstances that might actually be in your interest. And in your interest in quite banal senses, namely enough to eat, a decent place to live, opportunities to develop human capacities and you know whatnot. Okay? So he did think right that there was an instrumentality required, but it is crucial for Marx that he didn't think successful communist revolution would be possible unless the back, right background conditions obtained. Right? So on Marx's view, if you write the Communist Manifesto in 1720, it falls stillborn from the press. It cannot possibly have any effect. But he thinks in the mid-19th century, it in fact can have an effect. Now, as I said earlier on, I think you know, he was wrong about the timing because like many in the 19th century, he had this overly optimistic view of what capitalism was accomplishing. Um, now, later on in the 20th century, when, you know, as the traditional working class of the 19th century grew smaller, as it became more layered, right, you know, and people began thinking more about the question, well, who is it that will be able to, you know, lead or bring about a revolutionary transformation, you know. So Herbert Marcuse, I think, thought it was the Jefferson Airplane and college students. I don't think that was hugely realistic on, <laughs> on his part. Um, I think it's important to see, though, that, you know, where we've had nominally or self-proclaimed communist revolutions, the Soviet Union, Russia in 1917, or, you know, Cuba under... Fidel Castro or China under Mao Zedong, none of them were, by my lights, very serious students of Marx. Well, Castro and Mao clearly weren't. You know, Lenin should have known better. But having read Marx, right, the, the correct thing to do in 1917 would have been to institute genuine capitalist relations of production. You know, after displacing, you know, and executing the aristocracy, which they did that part, right? But they missed that part of Marx, you know, that makes him sound like the Chicago School of Economics. 
namely that capitalism is really good at doing something that's essential for a different form of social economic organization to be possible, namely to develop the productive powers of humanity to such an enormous extent that we eliminate the era of need. Now, you know, what will the future hold in this regard? You know, what instrumentalities, what forms of organization and activism will make possible transformations? I have no idea. It's beyond, I'll speak like a capitalist, beyond my pay grade. I, I really don't know, right? I think Marx's picture uh, that seemed plausible in the 19th century, namely large groups of working class people brought together in factories in the cities where they interact with each other and earn starvation wages and gradually become more and more miserable, but they're all together and near each other. Well, that looks like a good powder keg, right? That's not the way the world looks right now. And what it's going to look like in 25, 50, 100 years, I don't really know. Assuming it's not annihilated, of course, by... Uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> Putting nuclear annihilation to one side, it's very hard to predict. But um, I guess what I feel, you know, what was that recent movie, Elysius? What was it called? The one with people, the rich people living on, on their own little, you know, satellite off the planet Earth while Earth is... Elysium. I mean, in a way that describes what Marx predicts as the trajectory, not that he was thinking of satellites, right? But that as productive power becomes great enough to provide for those who control it, they enjoy it and everybody else is, is miserable, right? But in that kind of you know, science fiction image of the future, how would revolutionary action occur? God knows, right? There it involves smuggling into one of the spaceships you know, and so on. But that's just science fiction. So I don't think, while it's amusing, I, I, it's not really helpful practical guidance. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out Brian Leiter's paper called Why Marxism Still Does Not Need Normative Theory, which appeared in 2015 in a journal called Analyse and Critique. We'll post a link to it on the blog. Brian Leiter, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back again a fourth time uh, before we're all immiserated. <laughs> thank you, Matt and Lawrence. I uh, enjoyed it. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.